0: The following is a chapter reading of Pokemon, Origin of Species, by Daystar Eld. Please support the original author at DaystarEld.com. Chapter 1. Unreliable Predictions The Varus household second bedroom looks as though it belongs to two very different people or perhaps one person and one rampaging Taros. The floor is littered with clothes. Used socks lie in unmatched pairs beside shoes, and half the chairs and bedposts have shirts or jackets hanging on them. The walls are completely obscured by maps, charts, and detailed pictures of Pokemon biology and life cycles, most with writing scribbled on them in tight, efficient script. The small cabinet beside the bed is overflowing with books and notepads. Some spilled onto the floor beside it. Amidst this carnage, certain areas are pristine. Bookshelves line the walls, each filled with textbooks and novels that are alphabetically organized. The work desk is completely clear of clutter. Keyboard and mouse neatly placed at arm's distance from each other. The wires and cables are carefully zip-tied and braced along the wall and desk. A can of pencils and cap pen sits against the wall and a notebook rests beside it, open to a crisp, empty, white page. On the bed lies a boy, one leg and arm hanging over its side. On the wall above him, there's a calendar open to June. Most of the boxes in the first half have notes written in them. One by one, X's are drawn through each, right up to the highlighted square in the middle. Afterward, the squares of the calendar are blank. Today's the day after which all earlier predictions cease. As sunlight slowly fills the room through the drawn shades, a colorful alarm shaped like a chatot suddenly whirs to life. The lid over its round eyes slide open. It raises its head and its beak yawns wide to emit. The boy flails against the covers, sitting up and blinking through gummy eyes. He looks at the time and groans. It's only seven. He buries his face in his main pillow, right hand taking a second one to cover his head. His left swipes in the direction of the sound, sneaking the Sue's button on its head. It finds nothing. The boy takes a pillow off his head and swings it down at the alarm. The tip of the pillow brushes at Tito's beak, but the alarm is perched precariously on the end of the nightstand, just out of reach, as if whoever decided to place it had done so after measuring the length of the boy's arm and pillow. He bolts back up with a scowl and saggers out of bed just long enough to hit the button and slump back onto his mattress. He sighs as his eyes slip closed. Hey, Future Red, you awake? And snap open. Remember yet? The chatote asks in the young boy's voice. You predicted having trouble sleeping last night. Your last night, that is, not mine. And set the alarm to be extra annoying just in case you're unusually tired, since you can't afford oversleep today. That does sound like something he would do. Yes. Memories begin to seep through the cobwebs around his mind, and Red lowers the pillow and rubs at the gunk in his eyes so he could look at the calendar. Well, if you're listening to this, you're probably up for now. But if not... Red scrambles to the alarm. Too late? Red slams the pillow down on the chitote with a muffled bang and knocks it to the floor. But he's grinning. He remembers now. Today's the day. With a rush of energy, Red stumbles to the bathroom to shower, the initial blast of cold water waking him the rest of the way. He brushes his teeth with one hand while washing his hair with the other, then dries up and opens his closet. His traveling clothes are laid out carefully separate from the rest, stain-resistant, reinforced thread with protective mesh underwire, form-fitting but light enough not to hamper movement. He pulls on the black shirt Red and white jacket and denim pants, then opens a box of new but broken-in hiking shoes. Only after he's fully closed does he permit himself to look at the clock which reads 7.32. Red slumps. The lab doesn't open till 8.00. He checks his phone and sees no messages or missed calls. Foot tapping with impatient energy, he decides to make breakfast to burn half an hour. He goes downstairs to the kitchen and begins preparing food. When the egg starts sizzling, he hears his mom's door open upstairs, then feet treading down to join him. Morning, Red. Morning, Mom. She kisses his head and goes to the fridge. Your alarm was unusually insistent today. Red grins. Yeah, sorry. I set some failsafes. Mm hmm. She pulls the out of the fridge, a winking cartoon mill tank on the cover. Any words from Blue or Professor Oak? No. Red slides some bread into the toaster, then turns the stove off and lifts the eggs onto a plate. When he asked his mother to teach him how to cook last year, it was harder to reach the stove without standing on a stepping stool. But now he feels comfortable in the kitchen. He and Blue agree that they would be ready for anything on their journey, which includes knowing how to cook their own food in the wild if needed. They worked their way there by learning to cook in the kitchen first, usually this one, with his mom as their teacher. He said he'd call when it's ready. Good then. At least we'll have the morning together. She smiles. Fred was actually thinking of bolting down his breakfast and heading to Blue's for some last-minute coordination. He shoves down his impatience and smiles back at her. His mother did her best to hide her worry over the past year, but he saw it all the same. Overly affectionate words, prolonged hugs, and above all, a haunted gaze he only ever picked up in his periphery when she thought he was too absorbed in the work to notice. He knew at those moments she was thinking of his father, and worrying that she would lose him too. She sets the table and puts out their breakfast, then eats with deliberate slowness. They make small talk, while under the table, Red's foot bounces, 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 and his gaze flicks the clock again and again at the glacial sweep of its hands. He's buttering his third piece of toast when the house phone rings, and he surges out of his chair with a loud, I'll get it, as he runs to the wall mount. His heart leaps as he sees a lab public number on the ID. Hello? Er, hi? The man on the phone seems startled, and Red takes a deep breath to calm himself. Is this the Varus residence? Yes, Red says, speaking slowly as bands tighten around his chest. This is Red. How may I help you? Oh, good morning, Red. I didn't recognize you there. Professor Oak would like to see you come down at your earliest convene. I'm on my way! Red slams the phone into its cradle. It's ready! He yells to his mom as he runs upstairs, food forgotten. On top of his dresser sits a large backpack, stuffed with everything from clothing to snack bars, carefully weighed to ensure he could jog at length without tiring. He had packed and repacked it the night before in preparation, but after having trouble sleeping, he pulled the Kanto map out to study it by lamplight. Then a list of species types than half a dozen other things, inevitably, half the bag's smaller side pockets were spread out over his nightstand. He quickly repacks everything, then slings it over his shoulder and heads out the door. He stops halfway out and looks back. Red examines his books, his video games, his toys, knowing it might be months before he gets to see any of it again. His gaze falls on his calendar, with all the empty squares ahead. Red smiles and closes the door firmly behind him. His mom is standing by the front door when he goes downstairs. He slows and stands before her, only having to tilt his chin a little to meet her gaze. Got everything? There's a slight hitch into her throat. There, then gone. And suddenly, Red's throat feels clogged. Don't cry. I I think so. You'll call when you get to Viridian? Of course. And every night after? Red shifts his weight. Yeah. And if you need any more underwear, mom! He puts his hand on the doorknob, and she covers it with hers. Forgetting something? She pulls his hat off the wall hook behind her and fits it snug over his dark hair. There. Now you look like you're ready for anything. Red tugs the cap's crimson bill a bit lower. Thanks. I thought it was my bag. He reaches for the door again, pauses, then hugs her nearly as tight as she hugs him. Be
1: careful, Red. She whispers.
0: I will, Mom. By the time he reaches Pallet Town's main street, Red's eyes are mostly dry, and he was walking with eager anticipation. The Pallet Lab becomes visible soon after, and upon turning onto the avenue, he sees a familiar figure in dark blue shirt and khakis on the other side of the street. Blue! He waits for a car to pass and jogs across to join his childhood friend whose own backpack bulges with its contents. What are you doing here? I thought you'd already be inside with your grandpa. I just woke up when they called. Blue rumbles, rubbing one eye. I couldn't sleep last night, so I ended up working on my type chart for a couple of hours. Red suppresses a sigh. A major difference that became clear between the two of them over the past year is that while Red's interest in Pokemon span multiple different levels, Blue is mostly obsessed with battling. Red once explained for 5 minutes to Blue how a researcher in Jonto discovered that, after breeding a Slowbro and a Bayleaf, the baby Chikorita that hatched was able to heal those around it. A power no other Chikorita had ever displayed, but that the Slowbro father had learned. Blue's only reaction was to begin feverishly mapping out potential ability combination to try for breeding competitive Pokemon. He wasn't the least bit interested in the implication that Pokemon retained some intuitive, genetic grasp of how to use abilities they didn't normally have. They argued about things like that all the time, and all Blue ever seems to care about is what makes Pokemon stronger or changes the type charts. Making matters worse, the suspicion Red has gained over the years that the entire concept of Pokemon types is majorly flawed. Let me see. Blue pulls out a folded paper and hands it to him. Red opens it and examines the handmade grid. On the top, from left to right, are 17 color-coded types. The main types are listed from left to right and top to bottom, and whereas various types intersect with each other are X's or Checks. Though most spaces are empty, and many have the smudges of erase marks, most of them seem right, though Red doesn't follow the competitive scene enough to tell what changes to the meta are new or outdated. One change makes him curious. What's this? Red points out the erase checkmark where Poison beats Grass. You remove Plants' weakness to poison? Yeah, I was watching the indigo regionals and started going back over a lot of the high-profile matches. In most cases, grass Pokemon were able to hold their own. Huh. Were you just looking at just indigo matches? That's where I'll be competing, so yeah. Red scratches his hair beneath his cap. Then your sample size might not have been big enough. Most of the plant Pokemon in Kanto have adapted to become poisonous. It helps them survive better. Well, that's good enough for me. Red frowns. What if you come across a non-poisonous plant type from another region? Blue shakes his head. Theory versus practice, my friend. Doesn't matter if a thousand grass Pokemon will lose to a thousand poison, if the ones I'm going to be fighting with are exceptions. Besides, I can recognize all the native ones anyway. This is just for quick reference. Well, if it's for quick reference, it should be accurate to the rule, not the exceptions. Red takes out a pencil from his pocket. Here, just put the checkmark back with asterisks. Blue grabs the paper from him and stuffs it back to his pocket. Look, you do things your way and I'll do things mine, alright? Red rolls his eyes. Thankfully, Blue is smart enough to know the difference between anecdotal evidence and evidence from rigorous experimentation. But he still puts too much stock in observation versus theory. Sometimes, all it takes is one carefully constructed and repeatable experiment to understand the truth behind a thousand different disputing observations. They've argued about it often, but Red doesn't want to ruin the special day with it. A couple of years ago, Oak took note of Red's grades at school and gave him some books to read that were a bit more advanced than the standard curriculum. When Red returned to Oak's lab within a week with them all Red and asking for more, the professor contacted his school and mother and informed them that he would be engaging Red in an apprenticeship. Ever since then, Blue and he began to grow a bit more distant. At first, Red thought Blue was jealous, but his friend showed little interest in the scientific pursuits his grandfather and Red had shared. Instead, the more Red learned at the lab, the more he and Blue argued. It got worse a year ago when they began preparing for their journey, and came to a head last month, when Blue declared he'd rather learn from experience than trust what's in books, and Red would race his life reading rather than doing anything worth writing about. Red responded that maybe Blue was just too stupid to learn from something until he had it beaten into him, and shortly after, one of them had thrown the first punch. After Red's mom had pulled them apart, they hadn't spoke to each other for two weeks, which is about as long as it took for Red's black eye to fade. It was only their coming adventure that put the fight behind them by unspoken consent. They're still a few streets away from the lab, and Red decides that the silence has gone on long enough. So... Do you know what we'll get yet?" No. He still wouldn't tell me. Said it would be a surprise. Personally, I think he just got them at the last minute. Any ideas, though? You know better than me, with all the time you spend at the lab. Red shakes his head. I really only deal with papers and reports. Once in a while, I see some Pokemon there experimenting with. But no record of all the ones there, and I rarely go to the ranch. They reach the plaza in front of the multi-story lab. The building is white and silver and glass—easily the biggest in Pallet Town, and it never fails to impress Red how lucky he is to be working at the hub of Pokémon research in Kanto. When Professor Oak moved to Pallet Town to set the lab up, it almost literally put the place on the map. Red's mother told him by the time he and Blue were born, the town had grown twice as large as it was originally, and in the eleven years since Red has seen it grow, it's gone twice as large again. They enter the air-conditioned lab and walk together through the entrance hall, where sketches and diagrams of Pokemon physiology are displayed along the walls. Red spots favorite, a drawing of a dissected Bulbasaur that's hundreds of years old. The frail, carefully sealed parchment details how the plant material is rooted and merged with the reptilian body. It's the first historical evidence of someone attempting a naturalistic study of Pokemon, rather than the ubiquitous regarding of them as supernatural and mythic creatures. It took generations for the rest of civilization to catch up with the unknown researcher's perspective that Pokemon could be studied and understood, a perspective that most honored those like Samuel Oak and the first generation of trainers dubbed Pokemon Professor. Red and Blue enter the office space and begin to pass a number of scientists that they wave to. Most of them are in their 20s or 30s and smile at the sight of the youngsters, knowing what they're here for. Good luck, Blue! Have fun, you two. Red, come see me after. I've got something for you. The two adolescents grin and wave as they walk through the labs, mutually picking up the pace as each other's excitement reignites their own. They're practically jogging by the time they reach the main lab, an open, round room filled with desks and computers, and various scientists scatter around the groups and many of the doors leading to smaller areas. Good morning, booms a voice. At the center of the room, Professor Oak stands beside the table, Pokedex in one hand and a Pokeball in the other. While he spends most of his days indoors now, the old man's skin still holds a hint of tan he carried most of his life, and though his hair is more silver than gray, his eyes sparkle with undiminished vitality and curiosity. His open white lab coat is heavy with various tools and electric devices sticking out of his pockets. Hey, Gramps. "'Morning, Professor Oak!' They run up to him as he puts the Pokeball down and slips the Pokedex into a pocket. Ray can see three Pokeballs on the table, each with a colored symbol above the button, a green leaf, an orange flame, and a blue water drop. His foot begins to tap in place again as excitement fills his chest and limbs with energy. Professor Oak beams at them. "'You guys look great!' "'Filled with eagerness and prepared for anything!' It almost makes me want to leave this all behind and come along. If I were ten years younger... He sighs and slaps his hand together. Well, time to pass on the torch. But first, an introduction. Leaf? A foreign girl with long brown hair stands from the computer as she was standing at. Red was so focused on the Pokeballs he didn't even notice her. She's about his and Blue's age and seems similarly prepared for travel. As she approaches... Red looks at the three Pokeballs again and blinks. You're coming with us? She smiles. Nice to meet you. Leaf, this is my grandson Blue, one of my students, Red. Boys, this is Leaf Juniper. She's the granddaughter of an old friend of mine from Unova, and she's recently came here to study Kanto Pokemon. Red stares at it until Blue greets her, then mumbles his own after. He knows Professor Juniper, of course, and he has a daughter, Orea who also recently became a professor, but he didn't know he had a granddaughter. He never met someone from Unova before, and he hadn't expected to be sitting out with anyone but Blue. I thought you only finished making 2 type, Professor? Red asks. He knows it's childish, but he doesn't want to have to share his. I have? Leaf's mother made her own Pokédex based on my last design, so she's trying to expand its listing for their international index. Professor Oak reached into his pocket and pulled out two red, slim computers. Red takes his reverently and opens the cover. A pair of touchscreens greet him. One a home screen with a bunch of apps, and the other a white, blank index. The empty numbered list calls to him, just begging to be filled with information. My latest design prototype. Almost ready for mass production. I want you two to give it a field test by catching as many Pokemon as you can to add to our database. And here are the Pokemon you'll be using to start. Oak gestures to the three red and white spheres. It took me a while, but I gained a hold of Bulbasaur, Squirtle, and Charmander from the breeders. Yes! Red barely stops himself from pumping his fists into the air, and Blue cracks his knuckles with anticipation. Such a rare and strong starting Pokemon have been almost beyond his hopes. They've been raised to be among the most intelligent and obedient of their species, which will make training them easier than most wild Pokemon you catch. Professor Oak says as he picks up the leaf-imprinted pokeball, "Treat them well, train them properly, and they'll be your friends and protectors until their last breath." The professor holds a lens on the front, level with a lens on the front of Red's Pokédex, and to his delight, a Bulbasaur suddenly appears on the main screen, sleeping in the simulated environment the pokeball creates for him, a lush, grassy clearing in the middle of a forest. A name pops up on the top of the screen, and after a second of loading, Red sees the Pokemon's vital stats get listed, height, weight, type, and more. Professor Oak moves the ball away from Red's Pokedex, does the same thing to Blue and Leafs. The video on Red's Pokedex freezes as soon as the lens is no longer aligned, and the image shrinks and becomes stored with an entry as a space listed 001 fills. When you catch a new Pokemon, just hold it up to the lens like this, and the Pokemon will identify it and record whatever information it can. Your pokedexes all have access to the sum total of knowledge we currently have about the various species. So if you see one in the wild that it recognizes, you'll be able to research it. But it will only be able to actually gather new information from the ones you capture. The more you catch, even among the same species, the more data we have on them. So each capture you have has the potential to teach us more. Do your best to try to catch them all. His heart in his throat, Red begins to look over the information the pokedex has on Bulbasaur.
1: Bulbasaur – Seed Pokémon It exists in a symbiotic relationship with the seed embedded in its back at birth, which sprouts and grows as it ages. The plant absorbs nutrients from Bulbasaur's body, while Bulbasaur can photosynthesize light through the plant's leaves. It can go for days without eating as long as it has enough sunlight and water, and the plant can survive without sunlight as long as Bulbasaur can find food.
0: It goes on for several pages to describe all that has been learned about the Bulbasaur's growth, mating habits, preferred environments, and more. After the Professor finishes scanning the Bulbasaur each of their Pokedexes, he does the same thing with Charmander and Squirtle. So, I'm going to give you all the time to examine these Pokemon, then you get to choose the one you want. Red exchanges a look with Blue and Leaf. The Innovan smiles and gestures to the two boys. After you. I'm a guest here. They're all new to me anyways. I have no preference. What about you, Red? Blue asked. Got a favorite? Red can only remember a handful of details about the rare Pokemon, and looks at the most recent entry, number 007.
1: Squirtle. Turtle Pokemon. Its shell is hard and smooth, providing great defenses and allowing swift swimming beneath the surface of the water. Its skin absorbs moisture from the air to fill its water pouches, and when threatened, it can withdraw into its shell. And shoot foam or water from its mouth in a powerful spray. It also has strong jaws for biting anything that gets too near.
0: Pretty straightforward water type. He moves on to number 004.
1: Charmander. Lizard Pokémon. The Charmander prefer rocky, mountainous terrain and hatch on their eggs when their tails ignite and crack the shell. The flame on the end of their tail varies in strength and size based on their mood and health. It is said that Charmander dies if the flame goes out.
0: Red frowns. It is said? Professor, the entry on Charmander, it says that it dies if the flame on the end of its tail goes out. That can't be right, can it? Professor Oak shrugs. Based on what's been observed, that's the inference many have drawn. Hmm. The professor worded that rather oddly. But if the flame varies based on their health, wouldn't it be more logical to say that when they die, the fire goes out? More logical, Blue says. Who cares if it sounds more logical? He just said it that it's been observed. But that's the fallacy of correlation causation, Red says. Just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean that one causes the other, or that we can tell which one causes which. Leaf surprises Red by nodding. It's like saying p flock in city parks because people feed them. But p Dove might be there anyway if no one feeds them,
1: because those parks are where insects and berries they would normally eat are. So maybe people feed p Dove
0: in the parks because they like feeding p and that's where p happened to be because of the environment. Professor Oak examines the image of the Charmander sleeping in its artificial cave, tail flame lighting its surroundings. Well, Charmander won't go anywhere near water in quantities larger than a puddle. So, short of forcing one to submerge, there's just no way to tell for sure. And since that might kill the Charmander, we obviously wouldn't try that experiment. Of course not, but there has to be some way of determining it. Red picks up Charmander's Pokeball. Here's a worthy first mystery to take on. He would find a way to prove one way or another how Charmander's fire relates to their vitality and begins earning his Pokemon's research license. I've decided, if it's okay with the other two, I want to study Charmander. As Red suspected, Blue immediately picks up the water type. I choose Squirtle. He grins and spins the Pokeball around on the tip of his finger before tossing it a bit and catching it. Red wonders how long Blue practiced that. Either way, it looks cool, and he has to stop himself from attempting it himself. He'll try it later in private. Well, I guess I leave him with Bulbasaur, Leaf says happily as she picks it up. I was lying earlier when I said I had no favorite. It's got a certain symmetry, don't you think? It does indeed, Professor Oak says with a smile. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a velvet bag, then carefully pours a handful of shrunken Pokeballs into his palm and hands them out. Press the button to expand or shrink its size. When you catch a new Pokemon, it will be atomized and compressed inside of it, but you won't be able to shrink it again. If you have too many to carry around comfortably, you can store them at any computer connected to the network and withdraw them from a different one later. Is the Pokemon's data kept in the ball? Red asks. No, it transfers the Pokemon to the network. Professor Oak points to the computer hard drives at the nearest PC. That Pokeball will still be programmed for it, though, so best to hold on to it. He hands out pamphlets that detail the way the Pokeballs function, and another for the Pokedex. The balls are capable of basic verbal commands to release, withdraw, and nickname your Pokemon. But the Pokedex is how you interface with the Pokemon themselves and for virtual training while they're in their balls. So if we lose these balls, something happens to them, our Pokémon are safe. For the ones you have stored, yes, though it's a hassle to get it rekeyed to another Pokéball. You essentially have to release it and catch it again. Red examines his Pokéball. He learned all this in bits and pieces over the months of working here, but it still fascinates him how amazing technology has become. He remembers seeing a picture of Pokéball technology back when Professor Oak was his age, before there was an internet to rapidly transmit Pokémon from one place to another let alone allow the balls to change their size. It looked like a big metal coconut. I know how eager you are all to get on your way, so let's get those accounts set up, Professor Oak says. They walk to the nearest PC, and Blue smiles at Red. So, care to try a battle when we leave? You know, as an experiment? To see if the type charts are accurate? Red sighs. I never said they're all wrong. I know water types are strong against fire. Leaf looks at him curiously. Was that ever in doubt? Blue puts his hand on Red's shoulder. Our Red thinks he knows better than everyone else about how Pokemon really work. Red shrugs off Blue's hand. I think the typing method that all the battle trainers are obsessed over has problems, that's all. And he thinks this based on his many years of first-hand training and battle experience. Drew confides to Leaf. Who giggles? Red feels his cheeks flush. Professor Oak speaks out from in front of the group. Red may very well be right about some of his ideas. No professor I've met has claimed to be 100% sure they understand how Pokemon work. They're mysterious creatures, and we've only recently had technology to study them thoroughly and scientifically." Leaf nods. Mom is always talking about how often she gets something wrong before she gets it right. So you journey to become a professor, Red? For now, I'd be satisfied with getting my researcher's license and filling the Kanto Pokedex. They arrive at the PC. Professor Oak begins setting up their accounts. But, yeah, I'm going to become a professor eventually and get my own lab. Really? Leaf looks interested rather than skeptical, which is a nice change of pace. Most people outside the lab don't tend to take him seriously, but then she is the granddaughter and daughter of professors herself. What will your lab focus on? I want to study the origin of Pokemon species. Which ones? All of them. Now she looks skeptical. All of them? You mean... Red tries to ignore Blue's smirk. Yeah, I want to know where they all come from, what makes them so different from each other, and what makes us so different from them. The girl gives a low whistle. you and the rest of the world. You don't dream small, do you? Red smiles. Where's the fun in that? None at all, Professor Oak says as he registers Blue's trainer ID to the network. Leaf smiles back. Well, I'll be happy to hear about your theories on Pokemon type sometime. And I'll be happy to help prove him wrong, Blue says with a grin, and spins his Pokeball on a finger again, through battles. This has been a reading of Pokemon, Origin of Species, written by Daystar Eld, read by Mars Oliva. This chapter's original text can be found at DaystarEld.com. The music used is Goodnight, My Friends by DJ Cutman, and Pallet Town by Junichi Masuda, Arrangement by William Wong.